It's Valentine's weekend. We just want to see how many of you are going on a date on Valentine's. Okay, there's a few hands. The rest of you are in trouble. I heard of one lady who was going to get married, and the pastor was trying to explain what she needed to do for her wedding. And he said, look, it's pretty simple. You're going to walk down the aisle, you're going to stand at the altar, then you're going to sing a hymn. She says, I think I've got that aisle, altar, hymn. (laughs) And really, that's what we're dealing with today, is what are our perceptions of marriage and of love, and how can we form a biblical perspective? So once upon a time, my wife and I fell in love. And when we fell in love, I asked her to marry me. I was over in Africa. She was in the States. She came over for a month, beautiful candlelit dinner. And uh, then I asked her to marry me, and she went back to the States, and we started corresponding. And she kept all of those emails. So I thought I would share one with you because it describes what I was like back then. I want to walk with you and talk with you. You can feel the mush already. (laughs) I want to hold you in my arms at night. I want to listen to music with you and watch a candle flicker. I was pretty poetic. It was temporary. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't in the script. I want to read and pray and watch the stars. I want to warm myself in front of a roaring fire together in the middle of winter, snuggled up to you and reading from our favorite book. (laughs) But how did we move from that picture to the picture of having intense and interesting discussions? Not arguments. We never have arguments, but we've had quite a few intense discussions. <laughs> you know, I, I'm now a counselor, which I wasn't when we got married, but as a biblical counselor, I have quite a few people ask me for marriage counseling, and you know ahead of time, when somebody says, we'd like some marriage counseling, it ain't pretty, right? Nobody says, we want to come over and talk with you about how glorious marriage is for us and how we just wish everyone else was having such a wonderful time, too. That's just not why people ask, right? So when I do marriage counseling, I know ahead of time what people are calling for is because they're in pain, right? They're hurting. They want this other person to change. They want their relationship to change. And it usually boils down to some version of how can I get this other person to meet my needs, to stop hurting me, and to start helping me instead. It's uh, easy to see that the Hollywood model has crept into the way that we think of marriage. You know, there's this picture of Kim Kardashian, who I wouldn't have even recognized, but people tell me that this person is very famous. Seems like this uh, marriage was very famous, at least. This was not who she's married to now, but she was married to him for 72 days. Um, this, this model of marriage has become the, the quick fix for loneliness nowadays. It's sort of a, the Hollywood marriage is an I like you, you like me, let's make a happy family kind of thing. It's founded on feelings of attraction, but not on actual love. It's all about mutual satisfaction. It measures success based on happiness, and it is, bottom line, a contract and not a covenant the way God intended. 
See, and the difference between a contract and a covenant is that a contract has conditions, whereas a covenant is based on commitments. And so it's, if you please me and I'm happy, then I'll love you back. And we might be able to blame Cupid for this. Um, Cupid is uh, this idea of a cute, fat little baby going around shooting arrows, and uh, people succumb. Have you noticed that on campus? There's more traffic at Thatcher lately. But where did this idea of Cupid come from? See, Cupid actually came from the, the classical or the Latin uh, god Eros. And for the Greeks, this was the most powerful love. This was the supreme love. It could intoxicate you. This was the love that uh, once it was your god, it became your master. And you, it would either torture you or make you deliriously happy. And some of you know about that in your roommates. It was a god. And when the arrows hit, you had no choice but to obey that God. It was your only path to happiness. And today, that idea is follow your heart, follow your passions. If you have something you desire, you've got to follow it until you achieve it and you find it. But when Christians came along, they didn't put eros as the highest love. Instead, in Ephesians 5, what we read in our scripture reading earlier, it says that we are to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. And the, the word for love there that's used three times, beloved, love, as Christ loved, comes from the Greek word, guess what? Not eros, but agape. And agape love is different from eros because I, I went into a little study and I found eros love is love that is about self-fulfillment. It's about pursuing the object of my desire. But agape love is more subject-oriented. It's a person making a decision to love somebody else, to care for somebody else. Eros love, self-fulfillment. Agape love is about sacrifice. And these are two very different ways of viewing love. See, the Hollywood love version, when you're in love, according to Hollywood, you envision happily ever after being happy for you, right? Nobody gets married because they think, well, this will probably help me to grow into the image of Christ, right? You get married because you're happy with this person and you think, I'll be even happier if I can be with them forever, right? And instead, it often goes exactly the opposite direction. In fact, they did a study with 24,000 people, and they found that the level of happiness that you had before, married, before marriage did go up a little bit. I think it was like a quarter of a percent after you were married. But if you were unhappy before you got married, it actually became worse. You can imagine two unhappy people marrying each other and the powerful effects of that. So marriage does not add to your happiness. It simply enhances the happiness you already have. Um, this is consistent with what you've seen, I'm sure, in other people's lives, even if you're not married. You know, some people go, oh, it's Valentine's weekend, you know, mental Single awareness grown. day. Yeah, singles awareness weekend here, right? But if you're married, you know, they say marriage is like a revolving door. Those who are on the outside are trying to get in, and those on the inside are trying to get out, right? Except for us. We just Except want for to us. make Amen. note of this. Amen, right. <laughs> but very often this is true. That's because Hollywood and just our general culture of seek whatever works for you and makes you happy has poisoned us with the idea that seeking happiness is the way to find it. 
But the Bible says something opposite. And the book Education has this powerful quotation. Education, page 154, says, Unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom, is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. Do you catch that? This is so profound. The devil says there's no such thing as unselfishness in the whole universe. Where God says unselfishness is the law of the universe. It is the definition of my character. Satan says there is no such thing as unselfishness. God himself is self-seeking. And when we understand that, we understand what's really at stake in our marriage. Is it that God wants me to sacrifice everything and live a terrible life so that I can eventually make it to heaven? Or does God want us to live in fulfillment? And the pathway to that is seeking to love, to sacrifice instead of trying to serve, serve ourselves. Going on with that paragraph, it says it was to give in his own life an illustration of unselfishness that Jesus came in the form of humanity. And all who accept this principle are to be workers together with him in demonstrating it in practical life. To me, that sounds like very good news because that says that the God of the universe who is unselfishness, who is love, wants to implant that in me and transform me into becoming a loving person instead of the selfish person I naturally am. And he does it by helping us to imitate him. Ephesians 5, we go back to our verse. It says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Not in love in the Hollywood version, where you feel great, you get the tingles for this person, and then you have to seek this relationship no matter how many things happen. But in love means in agape. There's a, there's a story that my friend Kessie Bennett tells about a, a family. The, the father had a limp, and he, he always walked this way, but the doctors had told him, don't worry, it's not going to be inherited. But he was dismayed when he had a son, and as his son grew up and began walking, his son had the same problem. He walked exactly the same way as his father. So he was so upset when he took him to the doctor. The doctor examined his son and said, you know what? There's nothing wrong with your son. He walks this way because he's imitating his father. You see, he adored his father. He wanted to be like his father. He dwelt in his father's love every day, so now he wanted to walk the same way. God wants us to imitate him by seeking to live in the self-sacrificing love like he does. And yet, this is one of the most challenging verses of the Bible when it says, be imitators of God. You take the most loving person in the entire universe, and it says, be like that, and then it gets even worse. And I love the way the message puts verse 2 here. And it says, observe how Christ has loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. Did you, do you remember reading those words in, in one of those praise songs? Extravagant love. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. And then it says, love like that. Mm -hmm. And I just think of the cross. You know, when you look at the cross and Jesus dying on the cross, I am just astounded what kind of love drove Jesus to the cross. The kind of love that says you can spit at me, you can ridicule me, you can reject me, you can mock me while I'm hanging there, but I will love you in spite of all of that. And then I look at my relationship and I go, I am so selfish. Any of you had that experience? You look at Christ 
And you say, that's what I'm supposed to imitate. And then you look at the way you actually act. Because time and time again, I find myself acting towards the people I love as if it's all about me. I don't find myself hanging on a cross for them. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, if you want to be imitators of me, take up your cross and follow me. In fact, he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And honey, I have not always done that. I have not always put self on that cross. And instead, I've often put myself on the throne. See, when you take a look at what Jesus did here, he called us to die in love. He called us to become a sacrifice, to put ourselves on the altar. He called us not for self-fulfillment, but for self-emptying. In fact, this is his entire life. He emptied himself. In the Bible, this is called kenosis. Jesus emptied himself so that we could have everything. He poured himself out. And I uh, had a great quotation that I read that, that really I found it this time, Koya. And uh, it, it just told me about love. What is love? Love is an exercise in frustration. Now, just follow with me. You leave the window up when you want it down. You watch someone else's favorite program. You kiss when you have a headache. You turn the music down when you like it loud. You learn to be patient without sighing or sulking. Love's doing things for the other person. See, in marriage, two become one, but the one isn't you. It's the other person. Love is funny. Its growth doesn't depend on what someone does for you. It's in direct proportion to what you do for him or her. And when I thought about that, I thought about this is what love is, I realized my challenge because when I went back to our text in Ephesians 5, it told me what this love is like. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and did what? Gave himself for her. And I said, well, what is giving himself for her? You know, that already doesn't sound very good. And then I, I went and I read the yesterday Bible commentary and it got worse. Because it said this, the supreme test of love is whether it is prepared to forego what? Happiness in order that the other might have it. In this respect, the husband is to imitate Christ, giving up personal pleasures and comforts to obtain his wife's happiness. And I imagined in my mind a little tug of war going on. Here's my wife. She wants to be happy. Here's me. I want to be happy. If she would just do what I want... We would be happy. But now, the SDA Bible commentary was saying, the only thing I'm supposed to do is to let her have what she wants and for me to become a doormat. And I didn't like that. And so I said, well, maybe there's something else here. And in fact, I did discover that. What this text is talking about is much more profound than one person winning the happiness tug of war. And it comes from Ephesians 5, verse 25. Just take a look at it. It says, Husbands, loved your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might do what? Sanctify. What's another word for sanctify? Make holy. Make holy and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be Holy. And suddenly it hit me that the whole purpose of marriage, the whole purpose of relationships is to make us 
holy. That's what it's about. It's not about who gets to win the happiness pie today. It's about how do we get to become holy. And before the word holiness frightens you too much, the word holiness simply means to become more like Jesus. God wants us to be transformed into his image. When we give of ourselves to the other person, it's transformative to our lives. It's as if we have two paths in front of us. And we have to choose which way. And this happens, you know, in all of our lives, single or married. We have to make a thousand choices a day. Am I going to be selfish or am I going to be self-sacrificing? But in marriage, it happens especially because everything of everything of all of your life is shared. You know, I, I remember thinking when I, was a, when I was in college, I had my bed That was my place. My roommates could be messy or whatever. They could put their stuff wherever. Okay, whatever. But don't put it on my bed. But you know what? Once you get married, you don't have that space. You don't have any place. And I I know I'm not saying you have nothing whatsoever, but you'd be surprised. You You do not know the thousands of ways you do it your way because you don't think you have a way until you have somebody else living in your space all the time who has their way to do it. And you find out, why do you dry yourself off like that? Why do you do that with your soap? Why do you, why, why everything? Why do you always have to do it your little, way? Little things like where socks go. You know, I think great thoughts. Yeah. I'm a professor, so where my socks go is not really relevant to me. But it's very relevant to me when I have to pick them up, and especially when he has three children that all follow him and leave them all over the house. I have picked up so many socks. One of my best friends and I were just texting this week saying, if I, if I could get a dollar for every shoe I pick up around this house, we'd spend a week in Tahiti together. <laughs> but that's what relationships are like, right? You, you constantly are figuring out how to do this, and you can choose happiness or holiness. You see, God wants us to choose the holiness path, and that's the one that's less traveled. When you look at those two paths in the picture, the, the wide path is the one that leads to selfishness, but it's marked happiness, this way to happiness. And my husband stands in the way all the time. If you go back to that path allegory, the path to happiness, that broad way, he stands in the way all the time. When I want to go down the path toward happiness, there he stands. No, I want to go to this place for vacation. No, I want to have the temperature set on this at night. Everything, you know, every, every, everything. And so if my goal is to get to happiness, the way I'm going to try to get there is manipulation. I'm going to push him out all of the way. All right, all right. If you would just but do it this way, I need to get there. So then if you I could just happy. move this way, but I'll be able to I get want, to where I want. And he wants. No, I want it, to get there. Where are you going? It just never works, Right. Because if your goal is happiness, your spouse is going to stand square in the way all over the place. And then you're going to be always playing the game of, if you would just stop doing that, I could be happy. But God wants us to pursue the other path, the path to holiness, because there's nothing he can do to stand in the way of my pursuit of holiness. If I'm seeking to become like Jesus, the more pressure he puts on me, the more I have to take to Jesus. The more he teaches me, Nicole, do you know what I've given up for you? And everything gets into perspective. And I go, wow, Lord, you can help me serve this man. And you see, if you're pursuing holiness, if you're both becoming like Jesus, you have a common goal. It's as if you've decided on a a mutual path that you can both go down, a path that is not about your happiness or my happiness, but about what God wants out of our lives. 
Happiness goals always lead to manipulation, but a holiness goal leads us to ministry. When holiness is our goal, we know the other person. We recognize this person is made in the image of God, and we honor them and seek to help them grow into his likeness. That's what God wants for our marriage, not for us to be two people trying to get happier and stepping on each other in the process, but two people pursuing holiness and finding out ways that they need to become holy through their relationship with each other. And so when I looked back at Ephesians 5 verse 25, I recognized, okay, so there's certain things here. If I'm going to live a life of love, I need to be able to die to self. I need to be able to really seek holiness with this other person. But when I looked at this keyword of agape, I discovered something else. And you find it here when it says husbands are to love their wives. And this, this word agape love also means to honor. You find that in First in Peter chapter 3, it says husbands are to honor their wives. And suddenly I thought about it and I realized that happiness is related to honoring the other person. That holiness is related to honoring the other person. And so how was I going to go about showing honor to my spouse, really being able to love her the way Christ loved her? And it can be challenging because this is nice theory, but every day there are little things that can decrease honor. For instance, my wife and I decided uh, that we were going to go to the flea market, which is always a dangerous thing to do. So right here in College Dale, we went to the flea market, and we're wandering around, and one of her friends calls her and says, there are puppies for sale. And I, and I immediately responded, we don't need a dog. They weren't even for sale. They were free. We don't free need a puppies. dog. Free, sweet, spayed, vaccinated puppies. The kids are not going to do their responsibilities. They need to learn responsibility, though, Right. I grew up with a dog. He went everywhere with me, woods and fields, and my kids needed a dog. I just we felt didn't like need they a dog. Did. So eventually, I went off one side and I said, "We don't need a dog." My so parting I agreed. words: We don't need a dog. But Eve became separated from Adam. <laughs> <laughs> the flea market is big, you know. <laughs> That whole parking lot over there, you know? So I, I was just wandering, and, you know, before I knew it, I ended up at the tree. I mean, the puppies. <laughs> and my friend was right there, and, and we, you know, we just were playing with the, the two puppies that were left. They were very cute, and somebody was taking the other one. There was one sad, lonely, very sweet mutt. You could tell it was going downhill. She calls me and tells me where she is, and I'm walking over there thinking, we don't need a dog. And he was right. We didn't need a dog. But when he got there, I said, It was awfully cute. <laughs> she's really sweet. And the lady here says that she'll watch the dog while we travel anytime. That happened once. Um, and... She said, we can just keep it for one week and just see how it goes. Such a sales tactic. What could possibly go wrong, right? We just have a puppy for a week. Maybe the kids will see how much of a responsibility is and we'll give it back. No, we all fell in love with the dog. But I still, I made those fatal words, uh, said those fatal words that were going to change things. I said, all right, honey, whatever you want to do, you can do. So I said, if we had the dog, I would name her Zulu. And then I knew we were going to have a dog. (laughs) So we took the dog home. And the next week, she behaved moderately well. And so uh, we kept her for another week, and it's two and a half years now, and we still have a dog. 
But <laughs> I've been picking up chewed up plastic all over our yard for two and a half years now. And the children, of course, did they remember to feed the dog every day religiously? You know how that goes. I've been feeding a dog and making sure the dog has water and things like this. But along the way, you know, that didn't really bother me. I knew, you know, we know when we have a eight-year-old that we get a dog for who's going to be taking care of this dog, right? But that didn't really bother me. What bothered me was that my husband didn't care. He wanted me to know. I Every time you. something came up where the dog had to be taken care of, I said, remember, honey, this was your choice. You can imagine that made me feel warm and loving and accepted, right? <laughs> See, I had given her the choice, but I hadn't honored her. I'd let her do what she wanted to do, but I hadn't come alongside of her and showed her that I loved her. Because if she makes a choice, when you're together in a relationship, it means we make a choice. If she decides to do something, it means we are going to do it together. And instead of supporting, supporting her and honoring her and having this agape love toward her, all I'd done was simply given her freedom, but without love. So I had a talk with my wonderful husband and explained to him that I wasn't feeling loved in this situation. Now, I did not have the talk with him at the top of my lungs or start flouncing around the house irritated at him because that's not the way love communicates, right? Love has to have hard questions, hard conversations, sometimes does things that seem very unloving to the person who doesn't understand love. But I sat down with him and I said, you know, the way that we're handling this situation, I feel unloved. And to his credit, things changed right away. Soon, he was out playing with the dog, picking up the chewed-up plastic, helping feed the dog, taking care of things. We still didn't need a dog. <laughs> we didn't need a dog. It's true. But I'm very grateful that even though we didn't need a dog, I have a wonderful husband who loves me in the midst of my choices. And so when you look at honor versus manipulation, when you look at ministry versus manipulation, you can see there's a difference between them. For instance, if you honor a person, you recognize that they're made in God's image. But if you're manipulating a person, you see them as an object. You exist to serve me. And um, when you honor a person, you recognize that they belong to God as part of God's image. They belong to him. That's who has the ultimate control over their life. Instead of seeing them as an object to be manipulated. You give without expecting a return. But in manipulation, I give to get what I want from you. You want that person to be successful. But in manipulation, I need you to make me happy. When you have this honor mentality, you realize that God is using the other person to make you like them. Instead of saying, you're the problem. And when you have a ministry mentality, you say, I'll love you, even if you don't respond with love. But in manipulation, the love only lasts as long as it works, as it changes you to do whatever I want you to do. So the question that we have is what kind of marriage, what kind of relationship do you want? It could be a spouse, it could be a roommate. Which one is the highest priority to you, to you? Do you want a happy relationship or a holy one? See, if your goal is happiness, you're never going to be truly happy. You know this person and I are playing a game of 
I pay you, you pay me, we both will be happy. And it never fully works because you know the other person's helping you because you help them. But God says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We don't always think of that verse as talking about marriage, but it does. If we seek first the kingdom of God, we seek his righteousness. Righteousness is keeping the law, which is a law of love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is relational, and it's a transcript of the character of a God who is relational. God cares about our relationships. They are the center of his law. They are what sorts us into who's saved and lost at the end. Those who keep the law, those who love him and love others. Those who do not keep the law, do not love him and do not love others. It matters so much whether we learn to love. And that's why if you had to choose one, happiness or holiness, you'll discover these two pathways. If your goal is happiness, you'll never be fully happy because you'll be selfish. And selfish people are not happy people. But if your goal is holiness, then we believe there will be a byproduct of happiness at the end of the road. It's always difficult to sort our motives because in all of our relationships, sin and grace coexist. They're this messy mix. What is my motivation? And God is always about helping us to understand the motivations of our heart. I remember a situation that we dealt with um, with one morning, okay, my husband was racing off to work just as I got out of bed. So we had, our children were younger then. When you have three children ages five and under, nothing ever gets done, right? Anybody here ever experienced something like this? Yeah. (laughs) So he was racing out the door. I had a baby, a toddler, and a child who was just barely beyond that. The house was a mess. The kitchen was a disaster. He was gone, and I had the whole morning. The last thing he said to me as he raced out the door was, I'll be home for lunch at 1230. Phew, okay. Never make make these kinds of promises. I can make it to the finish line, right? My husband will be back in only this many hours. Well... I ate breakfast, then I started cleaning, looking at this despairing, huge disaster and children getting all over everything. Got the children dressed, got myself dressed, and instead of having my worship time with the Lord, I decided, as I carried something out into the garage, and I looked around and I thought, you know, Alan told me he really wanted to clean the garage. Wouldn't it be wonderful of me to clean the garage and surprise him so that when he gets home, the garage would be clean. Now, we'd, we hadn't lived at this house for very long, so we hadn't collected too much clutter, but it was a mess in there. So I pulled trash out of shelves. I organized things, zipped up all the suitcases and put them on the top, you know, swept all the leaves out. The trash can was overflowing. The, gar- the garage looked sparkling. It was great. I was so happy. But by now, it was like 12.15. Remember what time he's getting home? 12.30, he's going to be home. So I raced inside. I was like, I've got to make something. The counters were all covered with dirty dishes, but there were clean dishes in the dishwasher. So I pulled some of those out. I, I don't remember what I made, but I rushed through making something. It wasn't ready by 12.30, but thankfully he was a little bit late. So I was still getting it done. 12.45 rolled around, lunches on the table, hot. No husband. We live two minutes from his work. So... I thought, okay, he'll be here any time. But then I looked around the kitchen. I thought, maybe I should just try to get things as clean as I can in here too. Won't he be impressed when he walks through a clean garage into a sparkling kitchen? What a great wife I am, if I do say so myself, right? So the dishwasher was still full of clean dishes. 
which he had put in the dishwasher, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And I I cleaned all those out. I started putting the dirty dishes in that were all over everywhere else, getting everything clean, got the counters wiped off, the floor swept. It looked great. The kids ate lunch by now. It it was now 1.30. Where was the husband? So I was waiting, I was waiting. I was thinking, okay, he's going to be home soon. I'm going to hear a voice other than howling and whining pretty soon, right? 12.45, uh, 1.45 rolls around. There's still no husband. 12, uh, 1.48, 1.48. I hear the garage door open and my husband comes walking in on his phone and he's on the phone with his boss. I kid you not, this is what he said. Hi, Greg, are we still having that meeting at 2 o'clock? All right, I'll be there. Bye. I am hungry. So I get off the phone and I sit down and there's, there's still food there. Everyone else has eaten, but there's, there's, there's cold food, but it's still food that's in front of me. So I begin wolfing it down because I have a meeting at two. And as I'm busy wolfing down this food, I begin to realize that there are two eyes kind of boring into me. <laughs> and there's this uncomfortable feeling like something's not right. So I... Uh being the quiet, meek, mild kind of wife that I am, I said, <clears throat> I cleaned the garage. I'm like, wonderful, that's great. I've been wanting that to happen, thank you. And I'm back to shoveling food in my mouth. But I, I see the eyes once again, and I realize that I have to pay attention here because something is up and I'm a little clueless. He slows down chewing and looks at me. I said, I cleaned the kitchen too. Great, I, you know, wonderful, thank you. I've only got a few minutes here. Can I go back to my food? I didn't say that, I just thought it. But it, he might as well have said it. It was pretty obvious, right? So then he finishes wolfing down his food. It's now 1.57, you know, and he's like, okay, well, that was great. Thank you so much. He's racing off to brush his teeth and head back to work. When, oh, brilliant man that he is, he starts standing up and he says, is something wrong? It suddenly dawned on me that there was a reason why she kept looking at me during the whole meal. So I sat down again and I, I said... I said, sit down. So he did. <laughs> she He's did order like me and, and, I, and I followed as a good intuitive man. And so I was like, okay, what's wrong? I said, I cleaned the garage. Great! <laughs> Can I go? I cleaned the kitchen too. Wonderful! <laughs> he takes a quick look at his watch. And then she tells me, look, just go, just go. And I said, no, it's fine. I can call Greg and let him know that I'm not going to be able to come no, to the meeting. No, I said, no, 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 don't call him. I, I just immediately, I'm like, yeah, hello, Greg. I know I told you I'd be there, but I have married a wife and I cannot come. Trust me on this. <laughs> I didn't want to look like I'm even worse as a wife, right? So, so I then said, I go, sit go, back down up. again and late. she's like, no, no, go. So I go because I do what my wife tells me to I do. I don't know why he's confused by this. Isn't it clear? How many women out here think this, she should have known exactly what was wrong here? <laughs> I'm just saying. But anyway, brilliant man that he was, he rushed off to brush his teeth. And finally, I did what I should have done a long time before. I prayed. I said, Lord, what is going on here? Why am I so angry? And right away, the Lord turned everything right side up for me, as he loves to do when we pray. And the Lord said, you didn't clean the garage for him. You cleaned it for you. Mm -hmm. You cleaned it because you wanted him to come home and go, wow, honey, you're amazing. How do you do it all? Oh, I'm so in love with you. That's why I cleaned the kitchen too. You see, I did what he wanted, but I did it out of selfish motives. And God is always after the heart. 
He doesn't care about the behavior so much as he wants the why we do what we do. So right away I said, oh, Lord, you're right. What should I do? And he said, go apologize to your husband. So now I'm really confused because she walks in and she apologizes to me. I rushed in. Honey, I know you've got to run, but I just want you to know I'm so sorry. And I explained to him the 30-second version. This was what was wrong. He gave me a hug and a kiss and rushed off to work, and he was probably only one minute late. (laughs) But as I'm, I'm driving there, I realize that I too am at fault because while I was sitting in my office, it had been a busy morning. I'd been taking care of the kids so that she could sleep in, and that had compressed my day. But the real problem was, when I was at the office, a student had come in, and I didn't want to offend the student by telling them that I was expected at home. So I kept waiting for the student to finish. And what it meant was, I was more interested in looking good in the student's eyes than I was in ministering to my wife and not disappointing her. But you see, for me, I understood, once the Lord convicted me, What was wrong? My goal was wrong. My goal was happiness instead of ministry to Alan. My anger stemmed from him not fulfilling my goal, and I was bottom line seeking to be ministered unto and not to minister. I wasn't being like Jesus. You see, if our goals are happiness, if our goal is happiness, our contentment will always rise and fall on our spouse's behavior. What our spouse does, if it doesn't please us, we'll seek to manipulate them will swing from apathy to resentment, anger, disillusionment, or depression. We may find ourselves thinking, if only he or she would do this or that, I would be happy. And we'll always approach conflict self-protectively. I'm willing to give all these things as long as I get what I really want right here. But if your goal is holiness, you're going to rely on Christ as the foundation of your worth and of your happiness. So you're not going to be dependent on the other person and what they do for you. You're going to approach conflicts differently with a primary desire not to get them to do what you want, but for you to minister back to them. And you're going to approach those conflicts lovingly and respectfully with honor, whether or not you feel loved and respected back. Because when when you operate with the goal of holiness, what you're doing is you're bringing in the love of Jesus so that your home has an atmosphere of heaven. This afternoon, we're going to talk more about some of the, the hard knocks of life and how to actually apply You don't have to be married these. to come to this Yes, the, the, these, these are principles of how to deal with conflict within your relationships. All relationships are the area where grace works. It's where sanctification happens. It's where we learn to love God and love others. So whatever happens in your relationships, you're welcome to come and hear us. It's 3.30 this 3:30. afternoon, right? But our appeal to you today is to contemplate prayerfully. What does God want to do in your relationships right now? It may be in your marriage if you're married. And perhaps as we've shared some of our experiences with the process of sanctification being messy, you've realized there are some areas that I'd like to repent. I'd like to confess to my spouse, say I'm sorry. Maybe to your friends or your parents or your siblings. There's somebody that you know the relationship is rocky because your goal has been happiness instead of sanctification. So we want to encourage you as you listen to the music now, as you participate in that side of it, that you think about how can I treat people differently this week? How can I have Jesus' love, his extravagant love, pouring through my life so that we're both seeking the goal of holiness instead of happiness? This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.